Y'all can have a seat, and I just want to say uh, welcome again. I'm um, glad that you are here, glad that we get the opportunity to worship together. Um, it is a good day to be in the house of the Lord, amen? And it is a good day to praise the Lord. Every day is a good day to praise the Lord, though, whether we uh, are feeling it or not. We live in a troubled world. That's uh, not something any of us, I think, question at this point. The last year, if you didn't know it before, you know it now. Um, we have been in this COVID thing for about a year now, and it's been a crazy year. The Lord has been in so many ways good to us as a church, and it's so good to see and to count on what the Lord is going to continue to do moving forward. A.W. Tozer once wrote, The fall of man has created a perpetual crisis. It will last until sin has put, been put down and Christ reigns over a redeemed and restored world. Until that time, the earth remains a disaster area and its inhabitants live in a state of extraordinary emergency. To me, it has always been difficult to understand those evangelical Christians who insist upon living in the crisis as if no crisis existed. According to Tozer, and I think many of us would agree, we live in a disaster area, a state of extraordinary emergency. No wonder that Jesus commands us over and over again in the passage we're going to look at today, as well as all the way through where we've been for the last month, that we should not let our hearts be troubled. We're in John chapter 14, and this message today will conclude us in John chapter 14. Where we have been in John chapter 14 all the way through has over and over again reminded us that we should not let our hearts be troubled. In fact, that's where the focus of everything we've talked about for weeks is. Through all of that, we have been reminded over and over and over again why we can and why we should not let our hearts be troubled, despite the fact that we live in a troubling time, in a troubling place, and our very souls may find themselves at times troubled. Through John chapter 14, Jesus has promised his presence. Through John chapter 14, we have seen that we need to trust in him. Thanks, Rick. As he brings us to the Father. We have seen an insistence on Jesus as the only way, the truth, and the life. We've seen the giving of the Holy Spirit. And the promise of great things to come for those who live in faith and belief. And yet, many of us may still have troubled hearts. What causes our lack of peace? What causes our hearts to continue in trouble? For each one of us in this room today, if we have found ourselves or still find ourselves in a place of trouble, it may be for any number of different reasons. For some of us, we are living in shame for things we have done. And in some cases, things we haven't done that we should have done. 
Some of us are living in guilt. The weight of condemnation bearing down on us because of the sins that we have committed. The wrongs that we have done. For some of us, the lack of peace is a feeling that we must do more. That that because of what Christ has done, then I must do. For some of us, it's those things that are left undone. And for some of us, let me just say, it is simply the anxiety and the worry and the fear over what might come. Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. And yet many of us live in a place of anxiety and worry and fear every day, battling depression, battling anxiety, battling against an enemy that can't be seen. But Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Today we're going to be talking about peace. And I want to read for us from John chapter 14 that we might see where peace comes from. So chapter 14 of John, starting in verse 25, Jesus says this. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Peace. Peace. Jesus says, peace I give to you, my peace, or peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Today we're going to be looking at peace, and this really is, I think, the final answer of many answers on how it is possible that though we live in a troubled world, we might find ourselves without troubled hearts, that we might find ourselves at peace. First question is, is what is peace, right? What is peace? That's what we're going to start with, and then we're going to actually land in the rest of our time, and where does peace come from? Jesus talks about peace here, and we should know that Jesus, as a Jewish man, has a very specific idea of what peace means. The Jewish word for peace is shalom. And this word is a big word. It is a word that has a lot of meaning, and there's a lot wrapped up in it, and it's very, very comprehensive. Ultimately, it means to be in a state of the lack of conflict. 
Not just conflicts like me and somebody else, but the lack of conflict. And that gets really big. And you might actually explore that in three different ways. That we might find ourselves in a state of peace if we lack conflict with God, with ourselves, and with the world. Jewish peace is to be in a state of peace, the lack of conflict with God, yourself, and the world. And we want to look at each of these really quickly. Because how is it possible that honestly we could be in a state of shalom at all? Most of us battle all three of those in significant ways. But this is what peace is. And we're going to be looking in just a minute. Jesus says, I give to you this peace. I give it to you. So first, peace with God. I've known many who were at war with God. Some they know it, others don't. Many who have lost a loved one hate the Lord. They hate that God took this person from them or in the least allowed this person to be gone. All of us, before we come to salvation, are in a state of war with God. The self-declared enemies by our words, our actions, or both of God. Romans 8, 7 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Some translations of the Bible say it is at war with God. We all, before salvation... We're at war with God. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We all of us were enemies at war with God before salvation, having done nothing to earn a peace with him. But through Christ Jesus we find ourselves, if we are saved, in a state of peace. Jesus has ended the war between us and God, not by anything we have done ourselves. Peace is not just a lack of conflict with God, but as I said, also a lack of conflict with yourself. To be content in who and what you are, in your lot in life, Go to Proverbs 37, verse 9. You see this curious prayer. It's one of my favorite prayers in all of Scripture, actually. It's the prayer of Agar. He writes this. This is Proverbs 37 through 9. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove from uh, far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see this balance in this prayer between being too rich and being too poor. That in being too rich we forget about God and in being too poor we steal and blaspheme his name. That place in the middle is this place of contentment. Being okay with who you are and what you have. That you would not spend your life coveting after what you don't have. Be that riches. Be that a relationship that's outside of your bounds. 
a lot in life that is beyond what the Lord has given to us? Can you be at peace, at a lack of conflict with who you are and with who God has made you to be? So we see a lack of conflict with the world. We see it, a lack of conflict with ourself. And then we actually see a lack of conflict with the world. Now this is where things might actually get even more difficult. To be at peace is to have no fights, no wars, no conflict. James chapter 4 tells us that it is our sinful desires that causes fights of all kinds. Whether wars or fights with others. It is our sinful desire that leads to war. And in Christ, we are called to lay down our sinful desires, to put them down, to crucify them, and let them be crucified by our Lord, put to death, that we might not have them anymore. It's important to note that in this life, peace with the world may be fairly fleeting. Because you and I are still people that struggle with our sin. We wake up on every given day on the wrong side of the bed. We wake up with desires that we didn't even have the day before. And so as long as those sinful desires war in us, they will war with the world. And so we put them down. The trouble is, is even as we put them down, even as we make peace in our world and with the world, we live in a world that has no desire to make peace with us. In fact, we'll see this in just a few weeks in John chapter 15. That the world is actually at war with us. How can we possibly be in a state of peace with the world while it is at war with us? Well, it actually gets a little bit simple here. We go back to our relationship with God, in whom we had a war with, and yet He made peace with us. We look at Christ who was at peace in every way with the world, and yet the world was not at peace with him. Right? Christ was who Christ needed to be for this world. He was truly himself, truly who God had called him to be, and his every action towards the world was perfect. And yet the world still hates him. We're told in John chapter 15, for the same reason the world will hate us. Church, who are our enemies? Is it the flesh of this world? Is it the people? No, it's sin and sin's desires. It is the evil powers. It's the devil and the devil's influence that we're at war with. We're not at war with the world, though some of us live that way. To be in a state of shalom is to be in a state of peace with God, with self, and with the world, even if those things may happen at the moment. God, of course, not are at war with us. See, shalom is about where we are, not about where everybody else is. Jesus says to you, I give you peace. I leave you peace. I give to you my peace. This is, I think, best illustrated in a story many of, many of us may be familiar with. There's a song that many of us love. It is well with my soul. Many of you know the story about that. The writer, Horatio Spafford, 
1871, he lost most of, if not all of, his real estate property in Chicago to the Great Fire. Around that same time, his four-year-old son died of scarlet fever. Seeking to be a good dad and a good husband, he decided to send his family off on vacation while he finished up business. They went to England, and on their way there, there was a tragic shipwreck, and his four daughters were killed. His wife alone made it through. The telegram that he received said, saved alone. What shall I do? Horatio immediately went to England. And on the moment where um, the ship was passing, the same spot where his family's ship had gone down, the ship captain came to him and said, this is that spot. And it was out of this moment that he penned the words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, to know, rather, <laughs> it is well, it is well with my soul. Shalom. This is that peace that even though he had lost virtually everything, he still looks at God and says, I'm not at war with you. And I'm not at war with myself. And I'm not at war with the world, for you have made things right. Where does our peace come from? Where does a peace like that come from? That's a question we should all be asking. Because I'm going to take a guess that if you could just even think about what it would be to lose everything you own, followed by your family, that most of us would have a difficulty saying those words. Some of us have difficulty singing those words when one person in our life has died, when they're sung at a funeral. And yet, Horatio had those words on his soul. How and from where do they come from? That's what we're going to look at with the rest of our time. And we're going to see that in our passage today. The first thing that we see is that we can have peace knowing that we are not alone in our need. That we can have peace knowing that we are not alone in our need. Let me read for you verses 25 through 26 again. Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, in the first part, Jesus says, look, I'm speaking to you. I'm with you right now. But they all know he's about to not be. And he says, the Holy Spirit is coming, the helper, the comforter, the one who is to come. He's saying to them, look, even once I'm gone, you still won't be alone. Here Jesus tells his apostles and he tells us that the Spirit is going to be there for them and with them. And the Spirit is going to do two things. Teach them beyond what they've already been taught. As well as remind them of everything Jesus has taught. 
Now, when you think about this, the specific promise that's here for the apostles, this is really important. For those first believers, those first men, and the women that were a part of the church then as well, to be those who are going to be the ones who are teaching and writing the Gospels and sharing what Jesus had done and said. This is vitally important that the Spirit would be there. What that means is that when we open up our Bibles and we start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts, and all the way through the rest of the New Testament, it means that we are not reading the words of simple men. We're reading the words of the Holy Spirit who would teach them even what they haven't been taught yet and would remind them of all the things that Jesus did. You read the Gospels and you think, man, how did the disciples remember all this? How do they remember these very words? Have you ever had that thought? As you're reading through, you're like, man, this is a huge speech. How in the world? I can't remember what Pastor Matt said four minutes ago. Right? And you're like, and they remembered what Jesus said as many as 15, 20 years ago, word for word. How is that possible? Because the Holy Spirit would remind them of everything that Jesus had taught them. You get to the Apostle Paul and you open up the book of Romans and you see this incredibly well-developed theology. You see stuff that we don't see in the Gospels that Jesus didn't say. And you say, well, how does Paul know this? Well, because the Holy Spirit was there teaching him even stuff that Jesus hadn't said. Now, the powerful thing happens as you think through it and you think that there's nothing that Paul says that conflicts with what Jesus says. There's nothing that conflicts with, from, with Paul that Jesus says and, and vice versa. Right? The New Testament is written by a whole bunch of people through the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet what they say works together. Why? Because there is one author of God's holy word. And that's the Spirit. But this promise doesn't just apply to them, does it? This promise also applies to us. Those whom are saved and by being saved have been given the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit might be there to daily remind us of the very things that we have forgotten that Jesus has said, as well as to continually teach our hearts the things that we haven't learned yet. I think about Luke 12, verses 12 through 11, or, or yeah, verse 11 through 12. It says, When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. God's word confirms in itself that what we are given as well is this very command. And this very promise that the Holy Spirit will teach us and show us and guide us in ways that we haven't even been led in before. We are not alone. We are not left to do this ministry and this work alone. He is with us. And this gives a great sense of comfort to me. I hope it does to you too. See, what this does is actually reminds me, and I hope you, of our constant need. Right? If we need the Holy Spirit to come teach us, to remind us of Christ, to remind us of things He said, then what that means is that 
that we need. I find an incredible amount of comfort in the idea that we need. Some of us really loathe the idea that we need, that we are in need, right? We, we want to be self-sufficient. We want to have it all figured out. But the fact that the Spirit has to be there continually for us for the entirety of the rest of our lives tells us that, Dan, you're not going to have it figured out, and that's okay. Right? It tells us that when, when we royally mess up because we've forgotten what God's commands are, that the Holy Spirit's there saying, you know what? It's okay. But here's what God's Word says. We need to do different next time. See, when we are in need, it means that we need God. We need Jesus. We need forgiveness constantly. We need the Holy Spirit's power constantly. We need the Father's acceptance as His children constantly. This is not a one and done kind of thing. Some of us live like it is. We said a prayer 20 years ago. And that was it. That was done. Do you know that's actually a great way to not display your need? But when we need Jesus, when we need Jesus, Jesus shows up. And the Spirit is there for us. We will all sin. We will all flounder. We will all struggle. We will all fall. We will all not get it right all the time, and we too often forget what God has called us to and said to us and promised us. And yet there is peace. There's peace in the provision of the Holy Spirit, given that we might be constantly reminded and constantly taught in our need. The picture that I have in this um, is that of a computer, or maybe even your cell phone would be a fine illustration as well. If you go to your computer and you put up to Google or any other search browser and you put any question in there, inevitably, it will give you a lot of answers, right? Now, if you unplug your computer from the internet or turn off your Wi-Fi and you put that question into Google, what happens? Nothing. Did you know that you can't hold all of God's knowledge in your head at one time? Did you know that, that you cannot house all of the, the wonderful information and the wonderful knowledge of God and who God is and what he's called us at the same time? We can't. We are finite beings. And so if we unplug ourselves from the Holy Spirit, if we unplug ourselves from God, then there is nothing. But if we stay connected then we can find peace in our need. Are you attached to the source today or are you struggling on your own? So first we see that we have peace in our need because the Spirit meets with us. The second thing we see is that we can have peace which is given by Jesus. This is a gift. The peace that we are to have is supposed to be a gift it is not earned. Verse 27. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Now, that's powerful. Because he's first of all saying, I'm going to leave you, but I'm going to leave you in a state of what? Peace. I'd be really troubled, right? This is the whole point of all of John chapter 14. They're troubled because Jesus is leaving them. And he says, no. No. 
I'm going to leave you in a state of peace. And then he says, he one-ups that one more, and he says, I'm going to give you my peace. We need to recognize, church, that peace is a gift. One more gift in a long list of gifts that we are given by God. Right? When you start exploring Scripture, you look up the theme gift. It's powerful. Romans 3.23 tells us that our salvation is a gift. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.8 tells us that faith is a gift. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Romans 6, 23 through 24 tells us that both justification and grace are also gifts. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Along with these great gifts, we should also recognize that righteousness, sanctification, even the giving of the Holy Spirit too is a gift. Our salvation is all about a gift. It's not about what we earn. The only thing we earn by anything we do or anything we think is hell, is eternal punishment. That's what we earn according to Scripture. Everything else that we're given by God is a gift, unearned, undeserved. So we worship a God whose nature it is is to be a giver. He is the giver. This gets one more step even more powerful as you think about this because all these gifts are things that first belong to Jesus, that first belong to Christ. They are his possession. And in this passage here, we see that as Christ says, I will give you peace, and then he says, I give you my peace. My peace I give to you. Just pause on that for a moment. Remember, we talk about peace being what? It's shalom. It is to not have conflict with God, self, or the world. And then we look at Jesus and say, wow, Jesus had a ton of peace. He had perfect peace with God. There was no war between Jesus and God. There is no war between Christ and himself. And there is no war in Christ and the Son of God between him and the world. He is at perfect peace, even if they're at war with him. And he says what? I give you my peace. We don't have to rely on our broken peace. Our peace is broken. No matter what we do, we do not feel right with God because we sin every day. No matter what we do, we do not feel right in ourselves because we are at war with ourselves. There is an old man or old woman at war, literally, with our new man or our new woman, with our new self. And then we think about the world and man, I can't go a day without being angry at somebody or somebody being angry with me. And Jesus says, I give you my peace. He says, look, put your peace down. Your peace isn't going to get you anywhere. He says, I'm going to give you mine. His peace is perfect. And that's what he gives us. That's what he gives us. 
He follows that up in verse 27 by saying, not as the world gives do I give to you. So he's giving us his perfect peace, and he says, not as the world does do I give to you. He says, I give in a different way than the world. I give in a different way than the world. What does that mean? To be honest, I have no clear, concrete idea what that means, because Jesus doesn't tell us, and the scriptures don't. But when you start thinking about the, the gifts of this world, the things this world gives around, we might think of a few things. I stole these from James Montgomery Boyce. He said this, the world gives in insincerity, right? It says, I'm going to give this to you, but it holds on to it. It never actually releases it to you. The world gives in impotence. It says, I'm going to give you all this stuff, but it doesn't actually have the power to give it. The world says, look, you will be happy if you do things the way that the world says to do them. But nobody has ever gotten happy doing things the way the world. The world gives scantily. Right? It doesn't give everything it could. The world gives selfishly. Because the world wants something from it. The world gives to those who do not need and do not want. Right? Think about uh, when gifts are given in the world. It's usually to someone who doesn't need it. And it's to earn favor in some way. The world gives to take back. Now just as a, a joke, but maybe serious, just think about the latest stimulus check. The world gives in a certain way, doesn't it? Think about that. Now, admittedly, some of us probably need that. And that's a good thing. That is a blessing from the Lord of provision. But certainly not all of us do or did. The world gives in one way, but it must think more about what it means for Jesus to give. And Scripture tells us clearly the ways that Jesus gives. Here's a few ways. Remember, Jesus' nature, God's nature is as a giver. First, Jesus gives out of himself. Out of himself. We see it right here in this passage, right? He says, peace I leave to you, but my peace I give to you. He's not giving away something that belongs to someone else. He's giving away something that belongs to him and is in fact a part of him. John 15, 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus gives of himself when he gives a gift. John 10, 10, we're, we, we, we see how Jesus gives. Jesus gives abundantly. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly, have it fully. He doesn't hold back when he gives us good stuff, does he? He gives it all. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift he gives. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. Now we know if the Father's giving a gift, it's also the Son giving a gift, right? He gives good things, necessary things, the things we need. Guys, I just want you to think about what God gives us. This should bring us to a point of worship. To think through what it means for, for Christ to give anything to us, those of us who do not deserve it, which is all of us. And yet he just keeps on 
giving. He keeps on blessing. He keeps on pouring out. It's his nature. The peace that we can have as Christians does not come from us. It is a gift from him. The third place we see peace come from. We can have peace trusting in our sovereign God. Hear this well. We can have peace trusting in our sovereign God. Verse 27, picking up where we've read. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say that I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. At first glance in this passage, it actually looks like Jesus' path, what he's deciding to do and not do, is determined by who? By Satan, right, at first glance. Because he says, look, Satan is coming near. It's going to affect my behavior. I must stop talking now. But no. We think about these final hours of Jesus' life. And this is the final hours of Jesus' life. This is moments, moments before he is arrested. It is hours before he is tortured. It's the day before he is killed. And it'd be really easy to look at all that and just think, man, Jesus is, this is a rough day for him, right? He's just out of it. He's getting led along. The devil's having his way with him. Some of us feel that way because we go through our days and we recognize at the end of it, man, the devil just had his way with my day. I got angry here. I got led here. I got distracted here. I missed four good things that I should have done over here. And because of that, we look at, at Jesus' last day and we think, man, Satan's really doing a number on him today. His best, one of his best friends has left him, right? Judas has betrayed him. All this stuff is happening. But Jesus reminds us in this passage, he says, he has no claim on me. Everything Jesus is going through at this point in his life, and all the way through his life, was not Satan. It was not the enemy. It was not him being manipulated or tempted in some, some way. It was not him being attacked. But it was him. It was his decision. And it was the Father's will. Friends, one of the reasons that we can have peace, one of the reasons... That Horatio could have peace is to look out over the ocean and to think, Satan didn't do this. But this fell somehow under God's will. We lose. We lose a lot. We go through a ton of pain. And there are a lot of times when we think Satan must just be doing his thing. And yeah, Satan is trying to do his thing. But we worship a God who's sovereign. And what we go through, he is in sovereign control over, including Jesus' death. 
If Jesus is part of God's sovereign plan, if the crucifixion is part of God's sovereign plan, then so is what you and I are going through. I don't know about you, but that gives me a, a sense of peace. Because God does not mean anything for our bad. But all things he works together for the good in us. We can have peace trusting in our sovereign God. In verse 27, Jesus reminds us of his purpose in sharing all of this. Everything he's saying right here comes down to, boils down to, that we would not have troubled hearts. Verse 28, he reminds us that God is greater than he is himself. Now that's a weird statement. You think about the Father being greater than the Son. And this is where we have to go back to a theological word that we throw around once in a while called functional hierarchy. That we know when we look at the Trinity, there is no member, no person of the Trinity that is more important, that is more powerful, that is better than any other per part person of the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal. And yet Jesus looks to the Father and says he's greater. Why? How? Because it is always the Father that sends the Son and the Spirit. And it is always the Father and the Son who send the Spirit together. So there is a functional hierarchy. There is a, a respect in this place, what is often referred to as a first among equals. It's the same kind of thing that we hope for and honestly, in desperation, in leadership here at this church, that our leaders would be first among equals. Our elders would, would see each other in such a way as Christ and the, Son, and the Spirit and the Father interact, so too are the elders supposed to interact of this church. First among equals. We'll talk about more about that later this year because we're going to be talking more and more about eldership as this year goes on. In verse 30, Jesus says, I will no longer talk much because Satan is coming, right? And that may make us think that he is bowing in some way to Satan, but no. It is Jesus in this moment, in God's sovereignty, that is actually leading Satan into a trap. Satan thinks he's about to win this thing. Satan thinks, if I can just get Jesus to the cross, then I will win but scripture tells us that by Jesus going to the cross, it seals Satan's defeat and promises victory to those who are called to salvation. He says, the ruler of this world has no claim on me. And then he says this, and this is where it lands. He says, but I do as the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. This is a powerful statement, friends. He says, I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. The greatest demonstration that we actually believe in the sovereignty of God is to do the things that God has called us to do. A couple weeks ago, we read that Jesus says, look, if you love me, then you'll do what? Then you'll obey my commands. 
We demonstrate our love for Jesus by following his commands. Jesus demonstrates his love for the Father by obeying his commands. Because Jesus knows that those who do what God says demonstrate that they are at peace with the sovereignty of God. That they are at peace with what God is going to do. Doing what God has called is not easy. We look at Jesus, right? Look at Jesus, and on the, this night, later on, he's in the garden, he's going to pray, Father, if there's any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. We think about our own lives in the light of that. Doing what God has called us to do is not easy. It means living very differently from this world. It means spending money in a different way than this world. It means being friends and in relationships with people in very different ways than the people of this world. It means doing something different with our time and our energy. It means that the world sometimes looks at us and thinks that we've lost it, that we're nuts. But if we trust in the sovereignty of God, isn't that a good thing? Though they may attack us, they may fight us, they may go to war with us, we're living at peace with them. They're swinging swords and we're telling them about the love of Jesus. This is the posture of believers. Friends, when we think about the peace of Christ given to us, perfect peace that is given to us, it should give us every confidence to do what he's called us to do, to be the people that he's called us to be. To trust that as we go forward that no matter what happens to us, no matter what the Lord brings into our life, be it feast or famine, be it joy or sorrow, loss or gain, that we are at peace because Christ has given that to us. If you are a believer, then you have been given this peace. And it's literally a matter of, I think, of accepting it and, and realizing it and living into it. But if you're not a believer, if you've never given your life over to Jesus, then let me just say, you are already at war with God, and there's nothing you can do about it. You are at war with yourself, and there's nothing you can do about it. And you are at war with the world, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's the whole point when Jesus says, I give you my peace. Without it, there is no peace. And so we are invited as believers to come into that peace, to know that peace through his gift of life to us and the work that he did in the cross, on the cross as he took on that conflict and gives us his peace. And I just urge you, if you've never given your life over to that, today needs to be that day. You do not need to be at war when you leave this room, this building today but can find yourself in the peace that Christ gives to us. Amen? Let me pray. God, as we come before you and your word, we see this holy promise, this gift that you've 
given and offered to us, Lord, and I pray that we would be a people that would live it, that we would live this peace in obedience in faith and in trust, all of which are gifts from you. And I do pray, God, that if there is someone in this room right now who has not given their life to that, that your spirit would lead them to you in this, to see the truth of the gospel, to know the identity of your, your son, the perfect mediator between us and you. Help us, Father, today to, to live your scriptures. I pray, Lord, that as we come into the time of communion, that if there is sin or weakness or anything in any of this that, that just reigns true, Lord, that, that you would cause us to, to confess that before you. God, that we would come to peace through your forgiveness. God, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.